14 years ago this week, an airplane leaving New York City struck a flock of geese, destroying both of its engines. The story of the bird strike and the subsequent landing on the Hudson River is now one of the best known and celebrated stories in aviation. I'm Rob Webster, and on episode 15, we're about to hear from one of the passengers on that plane. Custer Road United Methodist Church presents The Story That Writes Us. Mike Coleman'sberger grew up in Garland, Texas, but lives in Columbia, South Carolina today. My path crossed with his when we spent a summer together in Slovakia on a mission trip, where he also met Amy Willard, whom he would later marry. On January 15, 2009, I saw a Facebook post of Amy's. In all caps, she urgently wrote, Pray for Mike. He's been in a plane wreck in New York City. Turn on NBC now. And so I did, and I was riveted by what I was seeing, the now well-known image of an airplane resting in the Hudson River, emergency slides extended out, and passengers standing on the wings awaiting rescue. I talked to Mike about his perspective on that day and how it continues to impact him now, years later, but I also wanted to get his thoughts as a storyteller about what happens when a story is told and retold and told again, and how for him the telling of his story is a wonderful catharsis. But before I started asking all of my follow-up questions, I just invited him to retell the story that he's told hundreds of times. Here's his account. So I was in New York City because my my company um, is headquartered in Long Island City. So we were there for a couple of days for training and and just to have everybody have a big powwow. Um, and we did that we did that every January. So we were up there. We had just finished. Um, it was snowing that morning, so that was that was semi significant. Um, late to later on, it was cold. It was about seventeen degrees outside. So there's a number of planes leaving LaGuardia that day with Metro Group people, and um, uh, my boss, who's also my brother-in-law, uh, we were on the same flight to leave. And I remember somebody saying, "Well, it's a great day for flying." And that's what a lot of other passengers have said. Man, they've just they reflected on how beautiful it was and the snow was gone. And so we got on and because of the foul weather that morning, there were lots of delays. We left at 325, something like that. So I just kind of I kind of dozed a little bit while we were, you know, 17th and 18th, whatever back before we could get up onto the runway. And um we took off and that was about it. We climbed, we hit about 2,700 feet altitude. And, and when we did, we hit that flock of geese. We went right into them. Now, from a passenger's perspective, it sounded like, like I imagine right in front of you, there's a big table or some type of table. It's like I took my hand and slapped that table right in front of you as hard as I could. That's what it sounded like. And it, I was like, wait, well, I might've been dozing, but I am not dozing any longer. And then it was startling. And I thought, oh my gosh, did something just fall off the airplane? I mean, what just happened? And passengers were alarmed, not terrified, but they were alarmed. Uh, and then my brother-in-law smelled something. He said, man, I think we've had a bird strike and we're gonna miss our next flight. 
One thing I noticed was it got really quiet because the engines were out, right? All that noise from the engines is gone. And so the plane, you could feel it. Uh, I can't say that I, at the time, knew that we were slowing down, but what happened was the Sully put it up and over. And as he did, he did a hard bank. That's, he banked and I could look straight down and, and see the water. And I was like, what is happening here? Um, so nobody knew anything. No noise from the engines, no noise from the up front because they're frantically searching, trying to figure it out. And none of us, none of us really knew what was happening. We were just kind of like, ah, now there were, that's when people started to, um, started panic just a little bit, grab their phones, making calls to loved ones, texting, that kind of stuff. We didn't, we were, we being the three people on our road, uh, my, my brother-in-law on my left, and then on my right was a guy named Eric. And we were like, well, what do you think they're doing? What, what, what what's happening? Well, you think we're going to try to go over there? What's over there? Oh, Teterboro's over there. You think, I don't know. It doesn't look like he's making, we're just kind of making a straight line. Quiet, just time's going down. We can see the plane's going down. Don't know what's going on. And then what seems like 15 seconds before we get the water, really actually was 90 seconds. He comes across, I'll never forget it. He comes across and says, he says, this is your captain, but we didn't hear that. We just heard, and, and in this tone, brace for impact. And it's like, what? I can't tell you when he said that flat tone information, serious as a heart attack, brace for impact. I thought we're dead. So people ask me, were you scared? I was not scared. Was I shocked? Absolutely shocked because this is not the plan, right? The plan is I've got four kids, an expectant wife. We're supposed to get old and gray and go travel or see our grandkids in an RV. All this is what's supposed to happen. Not this, whatever this crashing airplane business is. So I looked over to my brother-in-law. I said, this is it. Um, I love you. And it's like 10, nine, eight. And I knew, I knew we were going to crash and it was going to be some immediate horrific impact that would go like that. And then I would see Jesus. I just knew it. And, uh, it is not what happened. We hit. And when we hit, it was like that log ride at state fair, Texas or, um, Disney world. You know, that, that, that log flume thing. And when you go all the way down and you hit the water, that's what it was like. Water went boom. What was even harder is we dragged that right, that left side and we sheared that engine off. And as we sheared that engine off and it sank to the bottom, it made the whole airplane run and swing over like that. Uh, so it stopped and I opened my eyes and I'm like, we're in the, we're in the plane. <laughs> This is not, this is not blurry. We are in the plane. People busted open the, um, the emergency hatch and, and start going out. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, what, what? So Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book. One of the things he talked about was people who go through traumatic situations, especially police officers. And when they're in a firefight or whatever, I guess the amygdala narrows the scope of all their brain computing power into one narrow tunnel vision so that they can survive, you know, just shut down all the periphery. 
That's exactly what happened. People have asked me, what about people behind you? What about, what about this? What about that? I'm like, all I can tell you is I could see about eight feet in front of me and I could see the way out and that just the few people right around me and nothing else even existed. So I yelled to my brother-in-law, grab your seat cushion because I knew we were going out into the water and he needed it. And he's like, what? Because he had told people, everybody be calm. <laughs> so I grabbed my seat cushion. You always wonder about this stuff. You're like, what? It actually is there. What? How does this stuff work? Well, it did. And um, it came right up and we went straight out. And I realized, wait a minute, maybe I need to stop for just a second and help some people. But then I realized, as I actually turned around and looked, there's a throng of people that I am now blocking if I wait another second. So I knew I just need to get out. And um, it was the surrealist moment probably of my entire life, probably will, will be my entire life. The surrealist moment is to be standing on the wing of that airplane, looking up at the Manhattan skyline and going, what just happened? This this airplane that I've got, I paid and boarded and got up 3,000 feet in the air is now floating on this river. One of the things we found really quickly is that the plane was floating on the river and we were trying to deploy the life rafts that were there and it was caught upside down. And so we were reaching, trying to flip it over on the wing and guys were slipping. And so it was like, ah, how do we all stay safe and not go into the you know freezing water? Uh, but we finally got it flipped over and then we started funneling ladies and children that were not allowed children, by the way, probably 15 to 20 max. The wing, imagine you exit and the exit, the, the emergency exit's right over the wing and you can just go out the length of the wing. And that's what happened is we put, we stacked maybe 40 people on the wing. We were getting women to come back down the line and then funnel them into the raft. And the raft was on the trailing, the trailing edge of the wing. Um, and so they, they, they fill that up and there was probably some guys on there too, but it would, that was just mostly how it went. And then again, I don't have a concept of time, probably with the adrenaline and the, um, with the fear and anxiety and all that kind of stuff, boats started to show up, you know, and what was amazing to me is you got a double decker ferry coming, you know, wide open at us and then slows down so as not to create a big wake, but then approaches gingerly. Meanwhile. The water's creeping up higher and higher and higher. I can't see my feet anymore. Higher, higher. It's now over my knees. Higher, higher. And we're like, "What? Well, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? You know, we're, it's, it's really, really better. So the plane was sinking, but actually what happened, we sheared off one of the engines. Well, that was on the other side of the aircraft. Now, I don't know what engine weighs, but it's obviously very heavy. And so what happened was, if you go back and look, you'll even see it. You can find some of the pictures. Our side started to tip down and theirs came up out of the water. So theirs froze. So you've got people, you've got 40 to 50 people on the other wing and it's, it's icing up, right? Because it's 17 degrees outside, the water's 37 degrees. So it's perfect conditions to just as the wind blows, just ice. Now ours is sinking. So by the time... I actually was able to swim over to the ferry that was in the water. Um, I had spent about eight minutes in the water, 37 degrees, and it was up to, it was over my belly button. <clears throat> and you know, I'm, I'm six one. So it's, it's, it's getting up there. And so we were yelling at the ferry. 
And um, only later did we realize that not only was the plane floating down the river, right? Which, of course, is not in any of our minds. We're like, it's in water, get us out. It's floating down the river at a, at a steady clip, but it's also rotating. So the plane is floating down the river and rotating at the same time. And these uh, boat drivers, praise the Lord for them, knew that if they bumped us or bumped the plane, they could sink it. And so they were constantly coming up and backing off and coming up. Well, we're like, let me go and stop backing out. You know, don't do this. Um, but fortunately, in their wisdom, they knew the best way to approach every this whole situation. It's just a, it's just amazing. And they were throwing from the from the from the bow uh, and their bridge. They were throwing life jackets into the water, and we'd catch them and put them on. Then. Uh, we got off the plane, climbed up the ladder, got into the uh, the ferry, and they started funneling us back to the engine room. They said, we know your guys are freezing because um, I had on khakis and short sleeve shirt, right? I Man, that's what I had on. Well, where's your, my cold weather gear? Well, it's under the seat in front of me. I'm not thinking about grabbing a coat when I think this thing is going to blow up or it's going to sink immediately. I don't think about anything. But there was a lady on the ferry. I actually have her phone number even to this day. Um, uh, that allowed us to use her phone. And so David, my, my brother-in-law and I, uh, were, were there and we used the phone and I knew, I knew cognitively, despite what happened, that this is going to be on the news. You just, you just know. And so I, I borrowed her phone and I called the house. Well, we still had an answering machine, an answering machine that would, you know, broadcast this is 2009. It would play the voice out on a speaker into the room and it was a cordless phone so um i called i went to the answer machine and the answer machine picked it up my voice started playing and i said hey guys just want to let you know um i am okay i'm calling from a weird number because our plane landed in the river crashed you know landed in the river and all my stuff's gone but i'm okay well they rob they heard this amy and the kids could hear and they went berserk and they're running, trying to find the phone. They can't find the phone. And now they're all crying and they're running around the house. <laughs> it's funny now, but then obviously it wasn't funny. I, they finally got it uh, and we were able to talk and I was able to tell them that I was okay um, and, and, and what had happened. But it was a, it was a crazy uh, turn of events. At that point, you know, they collected as many people as they could up onto the ferry and then he spun that thing around and he floored it. I mean, he just, we went so fast. I thought we were going to get killed on the way back to the ferry terminal. Um, but then he got us, we got us all off of there and he backed up when got some more, but that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And thank you uh, for sharing that, absolutely. that story kind of from your perspective. So a couple of questions have come to my mind as you've been talking about, you talked about with your, uh, sitting next to your brother-in-law and you were fully prepared to die. Were you afraid? What was going through your mind at a moment? No, like no, I wasn't. I was not afraid. Um, I think. I think what was going through my mind was, this is not as it should be. Hmm. This is not what I expected. Um, you know, I've envisioned. Um, I guess as a young man before I walked with. Before I walked with God, I did a lot of really stupid things, a lot of reckless things, a lot of things that 
could have easily resulted in my death. Um, and yet they didn't because um, God had a different plan. But this, I felt should have resulted in my death. And yet it did not. And as we're, as we're going down, I'm like, I know how this is going to go. And it will for sure, you know, so I was sad for Amy. I was sad just in that blip. I was sad for her and the kids because I'm like, you know, like, I'm going to be okay. You know, I'm going to be with the Lord Jesus and I know that and I believe that and that's good. And she's going to be all alone and, and she's going to raise these kids by herself. And that's heartbreaking. So that briefest of moment that broke my heart. But I think the overall sentiment I had is how unusual this is and it shouldn't be happening this way. And and then just the immediacy of it coming. It's actually coming. I mean, I've thought about dying so many times in my life and what that's going to be like. Not that I'm looking forward to because I'm not, but I'm also not afraid of it. And so here it comes. I mean, it's not, I'm, you know, it's not a sudden impact you didn't see coming. I see this coming and oh my gosh, this is so weird. Uh, and that's kind of where it was. So it was not fear. It was shock. It, it really was. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I think, I think, I think, and, and afterwards when we got off and then in the ferry terminal, like, uh, Sully comes in and one of we was, you know, chit chatting, um, because we were contained, they contained us in there. They brought in blankets, red cross material, stuff like that. And Sully came in and I went, I, I, did, I admit, I didn't know who he was. But once I saw him in his captain uniform, I realized this has to be the captain. So I went straight over to him and I said, are you the captain? And he said, and, the, and he was shocked too. We've talked about this since. Uh, and he said, yes. And I said, well, you did a hell of a job and we all think so. And that was it. That was the extent of the conversation. And it, two or three years later, we, we were talking about it. And he remembered that being in shock as well. But um no, I was not afraid. And that is what was going through my mind was, this is the end. And it just is so unexpected and unusual. I, I just remember vividly seeing Amy's post, and that's where I was like, wait, what? Um, and uh, yeah, she wrote later that night, have you come back and read these messages that she posted? No, no, I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> well, she said, let's see, I'll I'll, uh, I'll tell you what, let's see, she said, uh, she was wondering if someone could tape some of this uh, coverage and President Bush's farewell address. He's going to mention the crash in his farewell address. So uh, someone said they would TiVo it. And then she said, a relief to talk to Mike uh, for a long time and hear all about it. He's renting a car and driving home tomorrow with David. Um, later she wrote, um, I'm hoping I can get to sleep tonight. I've got to get off MSNBC and the internet. So, and I know that um, that later, and this this made me tear up, and I've, I've since uh, I sent her a message one time about this. She had a chance to meet Sully. She did. Tell me about that, about her first meeting. You weren't there when she first met him. I was there. Oh, you were there. She, I was book, there. At the book signing? Is that what it was? Yeah, it was. A, so he wrote a book, um, you know, at cataloging his career and his experience about it. And that's what that's what everybody wanted to hear was, what about you, Sully? Because you are the one familiar with the aircraft. You saw this. You knew much more than any of these passengers. They just had a, a seat on the on the plane for the ride so to speak but you were actively engaged in troubleshooting and making these crisis decisions and i mean 
Rob, they did it. They did it textbook. They did it perfectly. No, they did it better than textbook because the textbook was too long for them to digest. So he had Jeff Skiles, who is, uh, who was the first officer, by the way, was also a captain. He said, turn on the APU, the auxiliary power unit, you know? Well, why? To keep everything functioning. Why do the engines roll back? Well, they, so they're, they're going through the manual as fast as they can and figuring this stuff out still while still flying the aircraft and still communicating with the, with the, um, God just brings up, First time I heard the cockpit recorder. Whew, God, that was a hard day, man. That that was a hard day. Was listening to the the cockpit recording between between them and and uh, LaGuardia. Yeah, that that was tough. Tell me um, about that. Why? Uh, I think because I knew one version of the story and I knew what I happened and what I saw. But when I actually heard, and I don't know if I've got words for this, but. When I heard what Sully was going through and what he was trying to process and how surprised, stunned, and shocked he was at the fact that he'd just been given 150 souls to guide and to care for, or we were all going to die if he made the wrong decision, which is beyond question. If you've seen any, done any research on this, I know you have, but everything is the same. He goes back to LaGuardia, we die. He goes to Teterboro, we die. He makes the wrong mistake other than going anywhere other than the Hudson and we're all dead. No questions about it. Nobody disputes that. Um, but when I heard the the grasping for straws by our guy that was the um, tower controller, right? forget me, his name, his first name is Patrick, but I forgot his last name. Um, he's like, what did he say? Our functions? Wait a minute, what? What? You want to go to bro? Yeah, let's go to bro. So he's just anything. He's desperate. You can hear the desperation come through his voice. You, want to, you, you got, okay, let me get you to bro. He makes call. Hey, open up, round bad emergency come in. You know, they're doing everything they can. And none of it matters. None of that desperation and that, that discussion matters because we're going to go down into the river. And then what happens afterwards is they don't even know what happened to our airplane. So as I'm listening to it, God, it just brings back emotions even now, but... It was, it was just really powerful for me to, to see what was happening behind the scenes of something I didn't know about, even though it involved my own life, you know, and all these other people on the airplane. Um, so that was, that was, um, that was, that was, that was stirring for sure. With Amy, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he either, Sully came to one of the uh, Charlotte, North Carolina bookstores but we knew he was coming. We we planned it, so we took. Uh, see, Luke was not born yet. We took our four kids up there with us and got the book, of course, and wanted him to sign it and 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 that kind of stuff. But I wanted her and my kids to be able to meet him, and uh, so we got pictures with him and all that kind of stuff. She wanted to tell him face to face, "Thank you for what you did. Thank you for saving my husband." And my two, Katie and Sam, my two oldest, also thanked him. And um, I, I can't speak for her, but I think all this happened in New York City, you know, a 14-hour car ride, you know, a thousand miles away. It's all very removed. It's all very television, not tactile. It didn't happen in my real life. I think that's how she felt. So when she sees Sully, she can say, thank you. You are the flesh and blood that saved my husband and, and gave back my children their father. It was, it, it was really, it meant a lot to her. It really did. And Sully 
was just he's as he always is he's just um so humble and such and such the perfect man for the hour and i'm so grateful for him well and i i know i exchanged some uh messages with amy um after after seeing that too and and yep. she said something about yeah what what you just said um it, it made her i think regard jesus right in a in a new right. light when you're able to hug a savior you know yeah um and, and just and i appreciate you saying that it no longer was this distant event but here was here was this man right right here in front of her and yeah. i think so often as we think about jesus he's a remote concept right but he's real and he's he's flesh and blood and mm -hmm. um to be able to say thank you for for what you did for me uh is remarkably profound um and um I, I know i know she said that it was it was a it was a profound moment for her to to be able to yeah. thank him face to face and i think she said she came up to the he was seated at the table signing books and then she, right. she introduced herself and he immediately got up and came around i think and uh, and said oh he i need to, i need to stand up and say hello he did. And yep. I, so she says here in her post too, uh, let's see, she wrote meeting Sally. I gave him a thank you hug. And, uh, and he asked me about Luke, how far along I was pregnant when the plane crash happened and how old he is now. It was so sweet. Um, so he, he, he was able to put it, put it all together that, Oh, you must've been pregnant. <laughs> about, <laughs> That's right. About when the plane there were several there. Hudson's and Sully's that oh, had been, funny. that had been born and named into yeah. passengers' families. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, let me let me ask you a couple other things. Um, sure. At what point did you realize how? I mean, this is when people think of like an aviation story. This is an amazing story, and will be one of the first ones that comes to anyone's mind. When did you realize what a big deal this was? Just in terms of the national consciousness. I think I think when it really dawned on me. So as as the plane is descending towards the water, I figured. This is being televised on CNN. You know, I knew I knew that was something. I knew it was a big deal because, I mean, the FBI, the New York Fire Department, the Police Department—they were all over us. And when we actually left, when we actually left the building, uh, the ferry terminal, there were ambulances as far as I could see. Rob, there must there must have been I don't know thirty or more. I don't know. They were prepared. They mobilized. And as we left, so we being my brother-in-law and I and the, the president of our company, <clears throat> he came to get us, um, ended up taking us to his house. Uh, and he lived there in Long Island with his, with his family. And we stayed night the night there rather than be alone in a sterile hotel room. Um, when we, he said, okay, you guys are going to need to run to my car. So we ran to his car and I got my red cross, cross blanket on. Again, I have no more coats or anything. It's still 17 degrees or colder outside. Um, and as I, as I run, I start to shut the door. I'm in the back seat. I hear boom, 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 boom behind me. And a boom mic comes in right into the doors. I'm trying to close it. And a lady slips a card in and says, sir, you were on the airplane. I'm like, yeah. And she said, um, sir, sir, can we, could we, I'm, I'm Rebecca such and such with, uh, ABC news nightline. Could we get your interview? And, and I just stopped and I'm like looking up at her out through the door and I thought, are you nuts? I, mean, I just survived a plane crash. I'm freezing cold and I'm, my life's been turned upside down, so to speak. And you want me to share this with you? What? No. And I shut the door and we, and we took off. And that wasn't the moment. 
But I think when we got together, a lot of the passengers as a group wanted to write a book. And I even forget the title of it, believe it or not, but I got a copy and I, I was a contributor and you could buy it on Amazon. When we talked to the author or compiler, if you will, whatever, she said, what y'all don't recognize as passengers is what actually happened in this airplane. I said, no, I think I do understand. She said, no, in the national's point of view, the national eyes point of view, we've got a serious economic collapse. We've got all this economic scandal with all these houses and mortgages and President Bush is exiting. We've got Barack Obama who just got sworn in, right? The next day after your situation. And he's inheriting an America that needs hope. And she said, you're a ray of hope to a country that's struggling right now. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I'd never even thought about it from that point of view because naturally I was involved. I'm way too close to the situation. Um, she said, yes, you guys are. And the, the emblem of that is Captain Sully. And that's why he's going on all these shows. And that's why everybody wants to see him because he is this banner of heroism and the hope that we need right now as a country and a nation kind of in a pretty good amount of turmoil. And uh, I think to answer your question, that was that moment. So, and it's good to hear you say that too, very, very positively, because I saw a documentary, I think it was on Nat Geo. And, and when I watched it, it was, it was very dark. Um, it was not this full of hope thing. It sounded, especially for the people in the back, I know, um, someone had opened one of the rear doors and then had to pull it closed as water started flowing in. And it, it actually sounded utterly terrifying. And, yeah. um, and I, I, and I didn't know if there was a a disconnect for you because it was so positively received and seen as this heroic, uh, you know, ray of light thing in a time of darkness. Could you talk about that? Is there a disconnect between the, the horror for some people and then the response of the nation to see it as such a positive thing? Well, you've succeeded. You've asked me a question I've never heard before. So <laughs> I think everything that you said, the answer is yes. So first of all, um, I have seen the Nat Geo, um, and uh, yes, I think it's somewhat um, dark and accentuates the the scariness part of it because it just seems it, it makes better TV. <clears throat> but at the same time, that was true. Um, the The plane had twenty six rows, um, and I was on twelve. So keep that in mind. And that's one of the reasons why I shared that. And we, as passengers, we always say our number as well whenever we're in correspondence or what have you, because your experience in first class was cakewalk. I could do that again. Halfway back, wow, that was that was intense, but not a big deal. The very back, it was it was scary. It was traumatic. Not the flight, but the landing. The landing was was traumatic for them. And keep in mind, of course, like I said, you had to touch the tail down. So they felt a heavy, heavy jar that I did not feel coming across. The, well, landing on with with the wings because they absorb. Look at it, surface area that absorbs the impact, and in and um, Jeff and Sully in the cabin, they splash down and water washed over the windshield, washed back up, and we're like, that wasn't so bad. Jeff's even been on record saying that wasn't so bad. Um, and so, yes, it was much more uh, traumatizing and 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 it was a was a problem for those in the back. And yes, they were. Some of them were afraid for their lives that they were going to drown, because there's a narrow way to get out of the airplane. And when water's rushing in, they had to jump seats and jump seats. That is all true. 
which was one of the reasons why we were trying to file out as quickly as we could um, of the emergency exits. And so as it turns out, there's some couple people who got exceeded, got hypothermia, and there was a couple of injuries. Um, now, the, 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 the person that opened the back door, it turns out, was the flight attendant, um, and she's also the one that got a huge gash right. from a piece of metal coming up and cutting her in the leg. And we, I know, I know her. We've met, uh, talked several, several times. She retired. She retired after that. Of course, they'd all, the entire crew had been flying a minimum of, I think, 30 years. They were very they were senior t- crew, veterans, all very well accomplished. Um, that, that dichotomy, if, if you will, or mm-hmm. maybe the, the, the discrepancy between the two, um, is real. And, and that did indeed happen. So when you interview somebody in first class in row three and contrast that with row 26 or 24, they're going to have very different experiences. However, that still is the, the overall um, outcome is such that nobody lost their life. Nobody was really seriously injured. And we all got out safely. It's miraculous almost. Do you think there's any resentment from the folks who are in the back uh, where they like, no. there's a, okay, I didn't know if they're like, the, people don't understand my pain or my terror and everyone sees this as rosy and this was really a, a horrific thing. Uh, I just, no, I just, no, no, yeah. no. Part of this podcast is about storytelling, but this whole idea of uh, that we are, we are storytellers. Uh, I believe we're all creative and we're storytellers, whether we think we are or not, we're all um, telling stories. And, um, and and sometimes stories in the retelling um, uh, can, can be interesting. And that's where this story has been told and then kind of uh, packaged and retold. And, um, and so I'm curious for you, this was 14 years ago, and you've, you've told this story um, who knows how many, how many times, right, uh, to different people. And in the in the retelling of it, are there are there some elements that you that you find yourself um, going back to and holding on to, and and other memories become uh, more distant, uh, but maybe all of a sudden show up in a in a in a fresh new way as as this story kind of gets retold by you and and by others by Clint Eastwood, but you know it's it's a story that's been told and, and retold. You know, that's interesting too. I don't know that I've been asked that. So I got to talk to you more, Robin, because this is great. You're asking me questions that, that people always ask the same things. And so I already know what they're going to ask. So I just tell them. Um, probably, probably just do the fact that since it wasn't important for me to bring up the first or second time, I kind of, I kind of forget about it. I can tell you maybe the second reunion Oh, wait, it's like, wait a second. No, no, no. We got word from Oprah. She, uh, she wanted to do a special for heroes. So she offered to, to fly us up there and put us up and put her on the Oprah Winfrey show. And so I thought I need to do this, you know? And so I did. Um, and I met one of the passengers there and she said, you, and I said, okay. She said, you saved my life. I said, you. What are you talking about? She said, I was going to fall off the wing into the water and you grabbed me and you said, you're not going anywhere. I said, are you sure? (laughs) She said, yes. And so I became a hero, even in the context of the story. And Robert, I didn't remember it. I did not remember it. I thought she's, it's okay. 
She's confusing me with someone else. But the more we talked about it, she had too much evidence, circumstantial and evidence. And I'm like, this did happen. And I literally, I remember saying to someone, you're not going anywhere. But that's all I remember. I didn't remember her face. I didn't remember her. I didn't remember the context and circumstances of what she was talking about. And so it's not really part of the experience that I had because I really don't remember too much of it. But but it is the defining factor that she remembers outside of the plane going down. And we've spent so much time over the years. And I just think it's fascinating how the memory accentuates certain things and deletes other things. And I, I don't know enough about the brain, but uh, to, to really say why that is the case. But David, as I told you earlier, my, my brother-in-law jumped up and said, everybody be calm, whatever. And he doesn't remember that at all. I'm like, how do you not remember that? I, you're, you dropped up and said, I watched you, you know, it's just one of those things about the storytelling component. I'd say, um, I think that the, the thing that I tell people really is just the personal side for me, which is, you know, I got on the plane, of course it took off, it hit birds, it came down, you know, that's, that's the nut, that's and bolts. But you know, what did I experience? And I experienced the fact that I could know for certain that and this is a you know as a as a minister for nine professionally for nine years i asked so many young men um you know if you were to die tonight how sure are you zero to 100 that you would go to heaven and, and see jesus and if you did die tonight and see jesus and he asked you why should i let you in here um what would you say i can't tell you over these years how many times i've asked that question and so to be confronted with that in a blink of an eye myself and to have assurance that I was prepared. Um, that's kind of my story. When when I meet people, and I, believe it or not, to this day, I still meet people that have not heard it. I'm like, gosh, have I done a bad job at not telling people? You know, I have intentionally not gone around talking about it just because it is not core to my life. It does not define my life. It, it is a big event that happened in my life and that everybody's really fascinated because at least, you know, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people over the years and, and I think they want to understand what it felt like. What, what was that like? Because it sounds so horrifically scary. And yet here you are intact, a normal person. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't know how to explain it to you. I can't, I can't download that data to you. I can't use the language properly because in many ways I'm limited in my ability to absorb what happened. And so I am also limited in my ability to communicate it back to you. Um, but I can just tell you that, you know, like I said, those things previously, shock, confusion, um, disbelief. And then gratitude and shaking your head afterwards. It's like, golly, it was, man, we were really close. That should not have gone that way. That's really, really strange. How else are you still processing it? And how does, how does an event 14 years ago, other than random friends from out of the blue, like me saying, can you want to talk about this? Uh, how is, how are you still processing things? I think at this point, the answer is, I really don't know. I think, I think I've come to terms with, with all of it. Um, but I think the takeaway is life is really fragile and 
one little thing, one choice, one, you know, turn of the steering wheel, one thing can change everything. It can end your life. It can end others' lives. It can do whatever. And I don't want to look at it so much as a negative because the converse is also true. One decision, one word of encouragement, one prayer, one hug can also turn the course um, and transform someone's life. So I think for me, I realized that the edge is much finer and sharper than I realized. I'm trying to say that life is very fragile and our, who we are as God's people is centered and firm. That the, the life that we live on this earth is very tenuous and short and fragile. And, and we are, as the scriptures say, but just a, but we're just a, a whisper. We're just a, a breath of wind and then we're gone. And we need, it's as, as if the scriptures say in James, you go and make these plans. Next year we'll do such and such and we'll do this and that. You fools, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. That's true. I now know factually and experientially in my life that I do not know what tomorrow is going to bring. And all I can do is wake up and say, thank you, Lord, for today. And, you know, please give me a tomorrow and let me be an encouragement to someone and support to a brother. Life is brief. Life is fragile. You need so much more than you need. And God offers all of it. And it's there for the, it's there for the receiving. I, I couldn't have asked you for a better summary. And I'm so glad you shared all that. That is a that is a great way to uh, to wrap up a really uh, profound story and a profound perspective on it and how it's how it's changed you. So, um, so bro, thank you so much for the gift of your gift of your time and of your story and of your your wisdom and perspective on it too. You know, I think you've given me a gift too that I didn't even, didn't even consider could happen. Uh, which is the fifteenth. Fifteenth is the fourteenth anniversary, and um, you know I won't be able to make the celebration. Um, and it's you know it's kind of rote at this point. It's not really, it's not a super big celebration, but we like to do it. And I just didn't think there would be something a good fresh reminder for me. I just expected this to pass along, and I'd be like, hey, toast at three thirty-three. All right, hey everyone, bye bye. But you have, thank you. I, I thank you for that because this is a you've helped me see a um, a good fresh reminder on this so i think we tell stories even stories we've told a hundred times before to remind us of the goodness of god i'm grateful to mike for sharing his story and i want to remind you that you've got stories too maybe they're not quite as dramatic but tell your story whatever it is so that others will know and so that you'll remind yourself too the Story That Writes Us is a production of Custer Road United Methodist Church in Plano, Texas. Come see us sometime.